What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the show today, Jason Cowley, the journalist and author, discusses his new book about England and the English, Who Are We Now? Jason Cowley is editor of British political weekly, The New Statesman. He's also an author whose books include the psychological drama Unknown Pleasures and The Last Game, Love, Death and Football, a non-fiction work tracing the evolution of the beautiful game. His latest book is Who Are We Now? Stories of Modern England, a timely reflection on the identity of his home nation. The book follows both individual stories of everyday life and the broad arc of national politics over the past 25 years. Our host today is Kavita Puri, the journalist, broadcaster and author. Her book and accompanying radio series, Partition Voices, explores issues of identity within British Asian communities and the influence of colonial history too. Here's Kavita with more. Welcome to Intelligence Square, Jason. Very good to be here, Kavita. Thank you. Your book takes a deep look at England from the Blair years to now, from identity, culture and the threads that hold us together. And in that time, we went from cool Britannia and hailing multiculturalism to the division of Brexit. And then we saw solidarity during the pandemic, which is where you begin your book. Why did you look at England and English identity as opposed to Britain? That's the key question, I think. Well, I've always, I was born and I've always lived in England. And even from a young age, I was aware of the complexities of living in a multinational state. And I've always had a sense that somewhere England, which is obviously the dominant country in the United Kingdom, I think 84% of the population of the UK lives in England. And the UK has been called by some a mini English empire, perhaps. But I've always, I was always aware of that complexity of living in the dominant country in the multinational state, but at the same time being aware that somehow England and Englishness had been lost within Britishness and Britain. And I think in recent years, as the British state has fragmented and British identity has become more contested, not least because of the rise of Scottish nationalism, I think it's forced upon the English um, a reconsideration of, of who they are and what England is. Because if you know, we had an existential referendum in 2014, um, a Scottish independence referendum, which had that been won by the independent side would have led to the breakup of the British state. And there was some complacency in England about that, an assumption that that wouldn't happen. Well, it nearly happened. And it, didn't, it certainly didn't put the matter 
to bed. In many ways, it fired the ambitions of, of the Scottish nationalists. So I, I was very aware that what happens if Britain breaks out? Where does that leave England and the English, who have been encouraged for so long to think of themselves as British? So that was really the beginning of my reflections, plus the polarisation and the division that followed the Brexit referendum in 2016. Well, you argue that Blair had a vision of liberal modern Britishness. He was a progressive. In 1995, he talked of being a young country in outlook. He was a Europhile pitting his vision against a conservative traditional Englishness. Do you think you can trace the roots of that later division and polarisation in that vision? I think those those early Blair years were, were very interesting when you look back. Tony Blair was a particular kind of um, progressive politician, really, very unusual um, for such a figure to have emerged inside the Labour Party and ultimately to become Prime Minister. But he, you're right, in 1995, two years before he won the first new Labour landslide election in 97, he gave a speech in which he did say, I want this to be a young country. We will be a young country. What he was speaking about was Britain, I think, not England, but he was aware of the weight of the past, empire, colonialism, and he wanted somehow to be free from it and he wanted to kind of reinvent the country as dynamic, open, liberal, progressive. He wanted the country to be right at the centre of the European debate, not, not, not at the fringes of it. And he wanted to kind of re remake the country. And that coincided, as you said at the beginning, with that whole cult of core Britannia that we lived through in the mid to late 90s. And that was the Blairite vision. And he wanted to kind of harness the forces of what he called the new globalization, the new market-driven globalization that was kind of transforming the world uh, as Blair saw it in exciting ways and dynamic ways. And he wanted to be part of that. And he wanted to escape from the past. He didn't like the associations that Labour had with the past. He wasn't a socialist. He was a different kind of Labour politician, actually closer in many ways to the Clinton Democrats than to those who had come before him in the Labour Party. And of course, Blair was a brilliant communicator. And one thing he understood is that very successful politicians tell stories. They tell stories about the country that they aspire to lead, and they tell stories about the future, in other words, the direction of travel. And he wanted to tell a particular story about a country that in many ways was, was a construct of his imagination. It didn't really exist. But for a period, I think a lot of people believe that it did. You talk about him wanting to escape the past, but did that mean embracing Britishness at the expense of Englishness? Yes, he had a particular vision of um, Britishness. He also thought he could solve the, the sort of the existential crisis of British identity and the complexities of the multinational state about which I spoke at the beginning. In other words, he thought if he introduced his devolution reforms, introduced the Scottish Parliament, um, the Welsh Assembly, um, the Good Friday Agreement, obviously brought, brought peace to the island of Ireland, he thought that would solve many of the tensions in, inside these islands. One of his key lieutenants at that time, a guy called George Robertson, who later became um, head of NATO, he said that devolution would end, in effect, the movement for Scottish independence. It would kill it stone dead. I mean, he couldn't have been more wrong, of course, but that's what they believed. But while they were talking about Scotland and Wales and, and, and peace in Ireland, they ignored England mm -hmm. and they ignored 
what was happening not in London or Manchester or the big dynamic multicultural cities, but what was happening out in the shires and, and neglected new towns, the coastal regions, um, the provincial towns. Something was stirring that Blair ignored. He didn't really want that to be part of the Britain that he was creating. And what was stirring, I think, was what I call in the book an inchoate English revolt. Well, I think you chart that very well. And what I like about the book is it's very much about respect and dignity, but it's also about disrespect that people felt that they'd been shown by those in power, and and as well as this kind of sense of powerlessness. And you very much anchor your book in, in the stories of individuals, and you travel across England far beyond the Westminster bubble. But it's also a really personal story for you, and you include your aunt, Connie, Why did you begin your journey in Harlow, Essex, with Connie and the closing of her surgery? (laughs) Yes, the book is not a work of polemic or political analysis. It's, It's a book of stories. And I wanted to explore what I call the social atmosphere of the country. It's a phrase George Orwell used. And I thought the best way of exploring the social atmosphere and how we've changed over the last 25 years was to tell stories. And one of the themes of the book, it's about crossing of borders. It's about journeys. It's about people who are coming into the country, people who are leaving the country. I write about the young Bethnal Green girls, for example, who who go to Islamic State. They, they, they leave their homes and go to Syria. It's about migrants coming in, people who want to leave. But it's also about journeys within the country and crossing borders inside England itself. And I make a return journey. One of the journeys I make is to go back to the home, my hometown, which was Harlow, Essex, um, where I was born and grew up. It was one of the new towns created after the Second World War by the, by the Clement Attlee Labour government an attempt to, to create housing and, and a decent environment for working class people, many of them living in the bomb, bomb districts of East London and northeast, northeast London. And after the war, there was a great need for, for housing and, and, and to resettle people. And a series of new towns were created um, around London. One of them was Harlow, which was an old settlement. It's mentioned in the Doomsday Book. It was a it was a network of villages, and they built the town around the villages. They they um, in effect they kind of didn't erase them. They sort of subsumed them into this huge what became a huge new town, and it was a utopian project. Clement Attlee spoke about creating the New Jerusalem, and it was a it was a social democratic project, and it was about trying to sort of bring dignity to ordinary people's lives. And my 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 parents, they were married in the nineteen fifties. They moved out to the town from the east end of London, and and my mother's oldest sister had made a journey before them. She was called Connie. And she settled in a in a part of the town called Pottersweet, which was one of the old villages, but had grown at, alongside the new town. And actually, I was born in in Potter Street in a little flat above a bakery um, in a place called Prentice Place. And directly opposite where we lived was the doctor's surgery, Osler House. And I can I, I can see it now as I looked out of the window of our flat directly at the doctor's surgery, which opened in 1955. Now, fast forward to 2018, and my aunt is now 90, and she received a letter um, saying that the doctor's surgery would close. There was no explanation. There was no consultation. It was a fait accompli. 
The local MP, a conservative politician called Robert Halfon, wasn't consulted. The local council wasn't consulted. And she was she was horrified. And what it would mean that a lady of 90 would have to take four buses, in effect, to reach a doctor's surgery where she would be relo- relocated along with thousands of other patients. So it was it was a terrible thing to happen, and it deeply saddened and shocked her. And she started a little campaign to try and stop it. There was some interest from the newspapers, from the BBC. And what we discovered was that actually the ultimate owners of the Prentice Place NHS doctor surgery was an American conglomerate. And they'd taken the decision to close it because it was so-called not, not cost-effective. And my, my aunt told me that she was heartbroken by the decision. And it also really, I begin the book with her story, not only because briefly she it, it gathered national attention, but, but because it told us something bigger, I think, about the social atmosphere of the country, you know, what was going wrong, what had gone wrong in Harlow, and why Harlow was a kind of microcosm of other things that had gone wrong elsewhere in the country, which I think was reflected in the 2016 vote for Brexit and that resonant slogan, take back control. Because what the people of Potter Street had lost, I think, was a sense of control over their lives. They were dispossessed, but they also, I think they felt deeply humiliated that such a decision could be taken without even consult any any form of consultation. And I thought that told us something important about how the country had changed and how the country was tra- changing. So it's not only is it a poignant story, I think, it's a story with political resonance. So I begin by telling that story. It is a very poignant story, and it really profoundly leads to this sense of dispossession. I want to look at dispossession and try and locate where that may have begun. Was it the 2008 crash, do you think, which led to the decade of of austerity, which led to kind of huge cuts of public spending? I think um, it possibly preceded the um, financial crisis, but the financial crisis was such a huge, a huge event. And um, the consequences were what became the Great Recession. And then a period of prolonged austerity uh, as the coalition government, conservative-led coalition government, attempted to kind of reduce the budget deficit as, as they saw it. And do you remember the rhetoric at that time was we were all in it together? And I don't think we were because certain communities were adversely affected by austerity. And already there had been a kind of decay of the public realm, already the public spaces in which we work and live and gather and commune had become degraded, I think, through neglect and underinvestment. And we saw that very acutely in Harlow, for instance. I mean, the Harlow, I remember growing up there as a young boy in the 1970s, where it's wonderful public facilities and its parks and play schemes and libraries uh, and a wonderfully clean and well-resourced town centre compared to what the town became sort of 20, 25 years later when it was in many ways, like a ghost town, particularly the town centre, full of empty and neglected buildings. And we see this repeated across the country, particularly in smaller towns, when you just have to visit the local high street and shop. There are so many sort of semi-derelict shops or charity shops where there were once thriving community shops. And I I find that profoundly upsetting in, in, in so many ways. So that sense of dispossession was exacerbated, I think, by austerity that followed the financial crisis, but it was already there. It's about the kind of society that we we want to be and and, and how we value the, the public spaces in which we we gather, I think. I mean, it's that idea of sort of private affluence and 
public squalor. And I uh, and I do that does worry me as someone who believes in the politics of the common good as as I do. So um, yeah, you're right to zone in on austerity. And the story about my, um, my my aunt's doctor surgery is certainly a story of the consequences of austerity, I think. The book is about journeys and people were making journeys out of Harlow. I mean, you made that journey and over the years, more of your friends did and, you know, young people were leaving. But the book is also about journeys into the country. And one of the most affecting stories is of Li Hua, who undertakes... I mean, the most perilous journey over a year from China to Britain, only to be met by disaster in Morecambe Bay. We know that Blair embraced open borders and globalisation, but you were showing us it's very ugly underbelly. Just tell us about Li Hua and why you included that story. Yeah, this is this is Li Hua, who uh, who some of your listeners may recall was one of the um, cockle pickers who ended up on... Morecambe Bay, picking shellfish clams from the sands, which were then gathered together, bundled together, and then sold particularly to European markets. And a lot of those workers on, on the Morecambe Bay sands in the northwest of England were undocumented migrant Chinese laborers, trafficked laborers, in effect, who had come into the country illegally. And there was a terrible disaster where they were out one night in February 2004, out very far out on the sands. And it's a treacherous, the, the sands are treacherous. They have hidden, hidden channels and fast moving tidal waters that suddenly at short notice come surging in. And that happened to them on that occasion and they were cut off, abandoned, alone out there on, on the sands, dark during a winter night pouring with rain, winds ripping across the sands. And more than 20 of the Chinese workers drowned. They died out on those sands. I mean, it was a national, it was a national scandal and a, and a tragedy. And we were horrified because nobody really knew, so they claimed, that this was happening out there on the, on the sands. And nobody knew who these people were. They were just shadows that were just ignored. And as someone said, they were operating in plain sight because, of course, we saw them, but we chose not to see them. We, we ignored them. And Li Hua was the sole survivor who was pulled out of the waters that night by a search helicopter. Miraculous that he survived. So all these years later, I tracked him down. I, I, I wanted to find out what happened, you know, who he was, how he ended up on the beach, and how he came to be in England. And after he was rescued, there was obviously a police investigation, and the, the local um, gang members were arrest, arrested and prosecuted, and Lee was one of the witnesses giving evidence against them. He had to do so under witness protection for fear for his own safety. So he was given a new identity. So he has that identity today. He has a family and he, he set up a business. So his story has had a happy ending. But what I wanted to find out was how he ended up on those sands. And what I didn't know, and I don't think anyone knew, was that a journey which should have taken a week. I mean, he, he paid some money in his village in China, a lot of money, to come to England where he'd been promised accommodation and a job by the so-called lo lo local sort of snakehead gang, as they were called, the snakeheads. But in effect, the journey took about 15 months. He had to go to Beijing and then to Moscow, where he was spent months in a house in Moscow with other Chinese workers. Then he was taken to Ukraine. 
Then he was taken to Slovakia. Then he was taken to Germany, where a group of them were detained, and then he was in a detention center. And then inexplicably, rather than being returned to China, he was released from a detention center in Germany. And then he went to the Netherlands, and then he went to France. And so it went on. Eventually, he came across the channel, English Channel, in the back of a lorry with other um, undocumented migrant workers, all Chinese. Eventually, when the lorry arrived in England, he was immediately arrested detained again for a couple of days, then released, ended up in Soho in Chinatown um, in London, where he was given um, an address to go to in Liverpool, um, in the northwest of England. He went to the address in Liverpool. The house was full of ill, thin, emaciated, impoverished Chinese workers. Most of them had come in into the Liverpool docks on a ship, some of them from the north of China, some of them from the south. He was ill, fatigued, but nevertheless, the next day he was at, he was sent onto the sands to pick cockles. You know that was his first day, in effect, working in England was on on Morecambe Bay as a cockle picker, and he that was his that was his first day of work, and his first day of work was when the disaster happened. I mean, it is a truly remarkable story. Occasionally during that long journey, he would make phone calls home and his wife would plead plead for him to return, to return to the farm where he had lived and worked with his, with his father. But because he was in debt to the gangmaster, he'd paid all of this money, he was in effect trapped. So really, it's a story about the, what I call the dark shadow of globalization. And I'm very interested in people who we see all around us. They're working in now bars, you know, they're working in restaurant kitchens, they're working as fruit pickers or as cockle pickers. We see them, but we don't really see them. We have no idea how, how they came to be here, about their, their inner lives, the suffering that they've endured. And um, I just wanted to really tell that story from his point of view. So I spoke to him, I interviewed him. We had a very long conversation and I drew on what he told me to tell the story from his point of view. And I think it's the, it's the story in the book that has been particularly well received. I mean, it is a very shocking story. And I think what you do very well is, you know, there are all these statistics, but we get behind that statistics and we see this one man's extraordinary journey. And what really struck me was how he said he just wanted honest work. He wanted to come here and pay his taxes. And, you know, it it, it wasn't like that for him. But he also now says he feels a sense of belonging here. But I suppose in the immigration debate, people see him as as a threat. And immigration comes up time and again in your book. And you argue that that the fear of it was compounded by stagnant wages and spending cuts and weakened public services, as well as you're covering a time when there was expansion of people coming in from Eastern Europe. Do you think that when we're talking about Englishness, there is also this fear of otherness? There is, Kavita, I think. You know, I welcome um, immigration. Um, I welcome the the multiracial diversity of the country as it is today. And that's one of the themes of, uh, of the book, how we can create a kind of more cohesive sense of Englishness as well as Britishness. Britishness was always a more welcoming identity, I think, than Englishness. Englishness, for whatever reason, for some, there was always a sense of uncertainty and unease about it, perhaps because of associations with empire and colonialism and even whiteness. Whereas Britishness was very much or is or has been, it's non-racial, it's civic, it's inclusive, it's plural. And many of my friends um, 
whose parents were were born outside the UK, have always been very comfortable with with a sense of their their own British identity. Um, slightly more troubled by a sense of an English identity. Um, but immigration has been such a such a dominant theme in in over the last sort of fifteen to twenty years, not least since two thousand and four, when the eastern states joined the European Union and the British the Blair government chose not to introduce um, seven year um, accession controls on freedom of movement. Which, which they could have done under, under EU rules. The big economies, Germany, Spain, Italy, France, chose to impose those seven-year transition controls to, to, um, on the accession states. UK, Sweden, and Ireland didn't, which inevitably led to a huge influx of um, Eastern European workers um, into the country, which I welcomed personally. But it unsettled uh, a lot of people and created. Um, well, it, what it what it led to was the greatest unplanned migration in, in, into these into these islands um, in British history, and that had um, consequences. And one of those consequences was it enabled the kind of the new populist right, nationalist right, to exploit it. I remember Nigel Farage, who I spoke to for the book, said to me he used two thousand and four. And the arrival of the Eastern European migrants into into the UK in large numbers to reopen the immigration debate, as he put it, which he thinks he believed had been closed down since the Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. So I think one of the challenges for the ruling elites, who obviously favoured more more migrant workers arriving in the country, was to to be truthful to the people, to tell them actually exactly what was happening, why it was happening, what the potential benefits were, as well as the challenges, the challenges on schools and maternity units and and on the welfare state. And I think one of the themes of the book is this is this lack this absence of trust. I mentioned austerity and this idea that we are all in it together. I remember a speech Gordon Brown gave when he first became prime minister that he will create jobs for British, British jobs for British workers. Do you remember that? David Cameron promising, pledging that he would reduce net migration to below 100,000. He never said how he would do that. And he knew under freedom of movement rules as members of the EU, he wouldn't have been able to do that. But nevertheless, they made these hollow pledges and hollow promises, British jobs for British workers and so on. Um, we saw something similar when Tony Blair took us into the Iraq war. So all along, I think, the elites, the political elites, haven't been honest. Um, they haven't told the truth. They haven't leveled with the public. And that's what's created the sense of distrust. There is this great moment in the book where you talk about Gillian Duffy in Rochdale mm. from the 2010 election. And that is exactly that, with the collision of the elite meeting the public. And Gordon Brown dismissed her when she expressed her concerns about uncontrolled immigration as a bigot. But she was also talking, as you point out, about many other things, student debt and the underinvestment in, in her town and in other northern towns. What did that iconic moment tell you about the connection between the elite and electorate? And did it foreshadow the debate around Brexit a few years later, do you think? Uh, absolutely. I think I think you're absolutely right to call it an iconic mom moment. I think it's one of the big political moments of the last sort of 15 to 20 years. This is during the 2010 general election campaign, when Gordon Brown as prime minister, you know, we're in the, we're in the, we're in the financial crisis now, Brown is trying to hold on to power, but clearly the new Labour years are coming to an end. Brown's campaigning in Rochdale. Um, 
and he meets this lady, Gillian Duffy, a longtime Labour voter, he believes, who's disaffected. He didn't know she was dis disaffected when he was introduced to her in front of the cameras. One of his aides, a woman called Sue Nye, approached Gillian Duffy on the street and said, are you Labour? She said, um, of course I'm Labour. And she said, would you like to meet the Prime Minister? And she said, of course I'd like to meet the Prime Minister. And she was taken over to meet Gordon Brown. And it's a wonderful encounter. And you can it's on YouTube if you want to have a look at it. And she starts to ask him questions. And actually, she's quite politically literate. Um, and her questions are probing. And you can see Brown's trying to flatter her and take control of the conversation. But she won't let him. She's like a very, very good political interviewer. She does raise the issue of migration, but not, not immediately. I think it's her fourth or fifth question. And she particularly asks about Eastern European migration. She doesn't make a, a, a racial point, I'm pleased to say. She also raises student debt, neglect in, in, in her hometown, um, national debt, and so on. And Brown's mic'd up after the conversation ends and he's get, he gets into his car. What he doesn't realise, there's a microphone on and Sky News pick him, pick, pick him up, dismissing her as a bigot. Later on, he discovers what's happened. He is aghast. He returns to her house later that afternoon, has a meeting with her, apologises, and he thinks it's over. And as there's a wonderful moment as his car pulls away that afternoon when the cameras were on him. Initially, he's smiling, but there's a moment where the camera catches him and his face is frozen in absolute misery. And um, why it's so significant, I think, is that Mrs. Duffy represents a voter that Tony Blair and Gordon Brown associated with the past. Know she was a conservative, small c conservative. They would perhaps have even called her a reactionary. She didn't embrace the new globalization that they embraced. She was unsettled by it. And I, although she seemed to be a figure from the past, in the book, the chapter about her, I call her a visitor from the future. Because that afternoon, what she did, she, she came to warn Gordon Brown and New Labour what was coming, what awaited the Labour Party over the next 10 years. And in many ways, Gillian Duffy had a better understanding of the political atmosphere or the social atmosphere of the country than Gordon Brown. And for a period afterwards, she became a kind of totemic figure. Both Millibrand brothers um, sought her nomination during the Labour leadership contest after Brown had lost the election and resigned. Um, David Miliband went to see her in Rochdale. She was brought to London to meet Ed Miliband after he became Labour leader. The local Labour MP, Simon Danchuk, became a close friend of hers. She opened his office. And for a period, she, she was sort of the voter that Labour had to win, win back. And then she, in the end, she was ultimately ignored by, by Jeremy Corbyn. And Keir Starmer never mentions her now. But she voted for Brexit. When I caught up with her for the book, she was a Brexit voter. I mean, she had abandoned the Labour Party in despair, and she opted for Brexit, as, as a third of the Labour vote did in those northern towns and, and, and those former Labour heartlands. So fast forward nine years to, to the general election of 2019, when Boris Johnson's Brexit Conservatives are running on a crude platform to get Brexit done, whatever that means. Boris Johnson was able to go into those old Labour heartlands and win. So many of those Labour voters, including in many former mining towns, switched. They switched from Labour, 
They backed Brexit and they then voted for Boris Johnson in 2019. And we are where we are today. So I think that that, that was an absolutely iconic political moment. And quite funny as well. It's quite comic. I mean, if you, I've tried to write it also with a little bit of comedy because... Um, well, it was a very you, comedy day, wasn't it? Absolutely. And also it was a wonderful moment because um, Sue Nye, who approached Julian Duffy and said, are you Labour? Sue Nye, Sue Nye was known as um, Gordon Brown's gatekeeper. Well, she opened the gate that day and Julian Duffy walked straight through it. I want to go back to something you talked about earlier, which is Britishness mm. uh, versus Englishness. Mm. And the unease with which some people have about calling themselves English. There's a friend of yours, a Sicilian friend, who years ago you tried to persuade him to call himself English and he, he couldn't. And I, I completely understand that. But isn't the point about Britishness that it's a bit like the American dream? It's, it's all embracing we can all be British and it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from or the colour of your skin. Can Englishness ever be like that? Uh, that, that, that? That is the question. That is the defining question of really both for our conversation and indeed the book. You know, that's why I've called it Who Are We Now? Because I, I, I cherish Britishness. I think it, I value it greatly for the reasons that you articulate so well. But my worry is what happens if it's taken away? What happens if the British state breaks up? What happens if there's Scottish independence? That's why I'm so interested in the English question. What will that mean for England and, and Englishness? And can we create an English identity that is as accommodating as modern British identity is? That's the question, I think. I don't have definitive or decisive answers, but, I just, but I'm, I'm asking those questions because I want to kind of explore the possibilities and I hope encourage others to think about them as well. You know what? What? What would that mean? To lose, to lose, to lose that sense of Britishness, particularly so valuable since the Second World War, when we've had um, so many migrants arrive in the country. I think very. I think on the whole, harmoniously, and compared to any other European country, we haven't had a significant neo-fascist party or neo-fascist movement. You know, look at look at. The French elections, you know, we've got the National Front or the for, what was formerly the National Front, the far right, for the, sec, for the second consecutive presidential election in the runoff against Macron. And Eric Zemmour um, polled 7% in, in the French election, uh, another far right populist, whereas you had the traditional centre-left, the socialists, and the traditional centre-right, the Republicans collapsed. They polled below Zemmour. So that's that's the question I'm asking. And my friends, I grew up in this little cul-de-sac in Harlow in Essex once we moved away from Potter Street. And my neighbours were, were three Sicilian families. And their children, born in England, were my friends. Um, you know, they spoke with a local estuary accent. Um, they were very comfortable about calling themselves British. But I remember my friend said to me, look, I'm Sicilian. I'm Italian and I'm British, not England, never England. And he used to support the national Italian football team. Of course, I understand why he supported the Italian national football team. And we were both Arsenal fans. But I wanted him also to call himself English. For some reason, that mattered to me. Although, of course, now all these decades later, I understand why he didn't. 
and why he felt uncomfortable about it. And I felt I encountered similar attitudes when I started um, working in London um, and, and, my, my, and particularly at university with my black friends who were born in England. But nevertheless, they had a very strong sense of a, what they called a black British identity and a black English identity then, in particular, I'm talking about the 80s, was more complicated, more contested. Although in recent times, I think particularly because of the success of um, what Gareth Southgate has achieved as England national football manager and the culture he's created around his young, diverse and dynamic multiracial team, I think, I, I think we've begun to see a modern English identity, which is not too dissimilar from modern British identity, I'm pleased to say. I think it is very interesting, and you talk about Southgate-ism, which is kind of like a new philosophy, really, that is combining, well, it is progressive patriotism. And you argue that Southgate really understands the difference between patriotism and nationalism, that you can take the knee and love your country, as you say. And, you know, we saw it Euro 2020 when, you know, the players draped the English flag around themselves. And he wrote that very poignant letter after the Black Lives Matter protests. But how do we get to that place? How how do we get to that all-embracing Englishness where you're Sicilian friends and your black British friends can call themselves English. Well, you, for a start, you you make Gareth Southgate prime minister, perhaps when he's when he ceases to be England um, national football manager. But but um, you know Southgate's he's in many ways you know he's a remarkable figure um, and has a respect of his players. You know some of them are political activists themselves, like Raheem Sterling around race issues or Marcus Rashford around poverty issues, and others as well, such as Jordan Henderson and Tyrone Mings. And, you know, this guy has their respect, and he's, he's, he's someone who seems able to combine tradition and diversity in interesting and progressive ways, whereas so many of our politicians seem fearful of these issues. They're either, they either exploit them for their own populist ends, um, you don't need me to mention any names, or they um, they avoid them. Um, you know, the English question, for some reason, is very problematic for the left, I think, for some of the reasons we've, we've touched on in, in this conversation. But that's, you know, that's what I'm after in the book. That's why the book ends, I think, hopefully, you know, I hope in the end, although some of the stories are painful that I explore, um, I hope I reach a point of accommodation and and hopefulness, because I do see I do see change. Um, some of it, not always for the best, but I saw good things in, during the pandemic. You know this terrible um, event that tested us all. But I did see uh, moments of national unity, social solidarity, um, people being brought together across um, across divides. And that's why all all the way along, I'm always looking for what I call this 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 politics of the common good, you know, the, the things that unite us rather than divide us. And I do hope we can evolve a more open and tolerant and progressive English identity. It's certainly a more benign identity than it was when I was growing up at the end of the 70s and, and early 80s. I mean, do you think, though, that the next generation who are not loaded with those memories of, you know, the National Front and hooliganism, who balk at the flag because they associate it with 
the dark days. Do you think the next generation will have a different relationship to England and Englishness, that they embrace Southgateism in, yeah. in a way that, that this generation doesn't? I think so and hope so. I certainly, you know, what we're calling Southgateism, which I love, actually, <laughs> I love that word, um, I did see I did see a flourishing of Southgateism um, around the Euros last summer, which obviously had been delayed by a year because of the pandemic, and all sorts of people were brought were brought together around around the flag. Um, you know, one can't be complacent about it. These 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 battles need to be to need to be won and fought. Um, sorry, fought and won, and then won again. Um, these issues are always in play: national identity, the flag. The nation, patriotism versus nationalism. Um, you know these these are these are these are big forces driving events right across not just the UK, right across Europe and and the rest of the world. And that's why you've always got to be vigilant. I think you quote Orwell in England, your England, that the country has the power to change out of recognition and yet remain the same. Isn't the truth that England has just always been full of paradoxes? <laughs> yes, I think I think that's absolutely right. And and Orwell caught that beautifully, I think, in that sense of, a, of, of sort of a changing changelessness. But the changes just over the last 25 years have been truly dramatic, haven't they? I mean, you touched, you, you began with Core Britannia and then took us all the way through to Brexit, the Brexit wars that followed, and then and then the pandemic. What are, what are huge events that have been happening? There's also another line by Orwell. If I can find it, I might not be able to find it. If I can find it, he says, and I've got it. It is of the deepest importance to try and determine what England is before guessing what part England can play in the huge events that are happening. He wrote that in 1940, as the bombs were falling on London during the Blitz, September 1940. Huge events were happening, and he wanted to determine what England is and what part England can play. That statement really is the starting point for my book. Today, I think huge events are happening again, and all I'm trying to do is work out, you know, what England is and what part England can play. But you're absolutely right. Um, <laughs> paradox is part of who we are, I think, and we have to accept ambiguity. We have to accept paradox, and also we have to accept that we're part of this complex, strange. But resilient multinational state, which isn't just one nation, but it's 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 several. Jason, thank you very much. Jason Cowley's book is Who Are We Now? Stories of Modern England, published by Picador and is out now. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared with me, Kavita Puri. Thank you for joining us. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today.
Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. 